Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. We've had a two-Sunday night break around the Christmas season, but we're back. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a Bible. We're uh, in a series called Renewed in the Spirit of Your Mind, Knowing How the Life of God Gets Inside. That's what we've been looking at in these Sunday night studies. The title tonight, and I want to explain it a little bit, Why the Things of the Spirit Take No Root in Some People's Lives. Why the Things of the Spirit Take No Root in Some People's Lives. It's a question that I don't know how you can't ask eventually. Two people hear the gospel, same gospel. Maybe they live on the same street, same environment, same circumstances. One person quickly receives the things of Christ, is born again. Another person just bounces off his or her life. No change, no difference, not interested. Why is that? Or take a church like Cedarview. Big sanctuary, all sorts of people. Here's two people. They come to the same church. They hear exactly the same sermons, exactly the same Bible teaching. They sing the same songs, the same hymns, the same worship courses. They're in exactly the same environment. Somebody thrives, grows, since being drawn closer to Jesus. You can see the change in, in their life. Another person, same church, same circumstances. They're there every Sunday going nowhere spiritually. Why is that? What's the difference? That's the kind of complicated subject we're going to be looking at this Sunday night and next. And I need you to have a Bible and I need you to think with me because these are really big issues that we're going to be studying. Why the things of the Spirit take no root in some people's lives? Here's a couple of texts. Get a Bible. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Big words there. Look at 1 John chapter 2, 15, 16, 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that's the same word Paul used in his text, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is it's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is the fourth, the fourth teaching in a series that it had its birth, if you remember, arising in the question I asked, What's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian in this present world? Not in eternity, right now. I mean, are Christians always morally good and righteous while non-Christians are always morally bad? I think we know that's not always the case. I mean, 
Aren't there some non-Christians who are morally honest and sincere in their actions in this world as much as many Christians? And we eventually, if you think back, we came around to studying Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 14. And that's where Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 14. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit, small s? Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we, some of Christians, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, capital S, who is from God. Why do we receive it? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. 13. And we, Paul's talking about his ministry, the apostles, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, so here's the unsaved. I said, what's the difference in this world between the Christian and the non-Christian? 14, the natural person. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, there's tons in there. We took... We took a couple of Sunday nights studying just that text. You can get those online. Paul talks about two kinds of people here. There are spiritually minded people and there are naturally minded people. That much is clear. So so placing, saving trust in Christ's redeeming work on the cross, it makes that difference. It creates that difference. We took two Sundays looking at that. So in a nutshell... Both the spiritual person and the natural, the unsaved. So the saved and the unsaved. They're both bright enough, smart enough. It's not an intellect problem. They can read what the Bible says. They can understand the sentences. They can see the paragraphs. They can know the stories. They might even be able to recite some of the doctrines. They might believe in the existence of God. They might believe that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. But the spiritual person, that's what Paul calls him, the spiritual person, he receives these truths with understanding, but it's mixed with faith. He doesn't just know these truths. He loves them. That's what the natural person can't do. He can recite the books of the Bible. He can recite the Ten Commandments. He might know the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount. He might even agree with all those things. But they're distant to him. They don't matter to him, the natural person. The spiritual person. He, he, he sees the sinfulness of his own heart. He senses his own lack of love for God. He might sense his own pride. He's humbled. When he encounters spiritual truth, he's, he's, he's broken. He, he craves redemption, forgiveness, pardon, to know Christ. Now, I'm risky here because I want to read you a quote that's really old. And the English isn't really sharp and quick the way we send text messages. This is a little more, a little more to unpack here. 
But I want you to listen to the way Jonathan Edwards describes the spiritual person, the way he, the way he comes to see and know spiritual truth and how it's different from the way the natural person might read the very same things in the Bible. So these words, buckle up, these words were preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1723. So when I was just a kid. In Bolton, Connecticut. And I know the English is kind of dated. We're not used to hearing this. But I hope you can consider this quote. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy quote. But he's writing about how the spiritual person encounters the truths of God. Here's what he says. The spiritual man hath got such a knowledge of divine things that ever since he is become quite another person than he was before. It has exceedingly altered his internal temper and his disposition. The knowledge that he has is so substantial so inward and so affecting, that's a great word, that it has quite transformed the soul and put a new nature into the man, has, has quite changed his very innermost principles and has made things otherwise, even from the very foundation, even so that all things are become new to him. Yea, he is a new creature. He is just as if he was not the same, but were born again, created over a second time, taking Jesus' words. Edwards continues, listen. That light and knowledge has been let into his soul that has so affected him that he has a new nature, just as if a new spirit were infused into that body. Of an angel of darkness has been made an angel of light of him, has brought the image of God upon him, has made him of an heavenly temper, has sweetened, mollified his dispositions, and of an heart of stone hath made a heart of flesh, of bitter has made sweet, and of dark has made light. This is the effect of true and spiritual knowledge of divine things. That's a bit of work, but that's a great quote. That's the difference. Now, look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's the same idea. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, talking about the Christian people, we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, now, stay with me here. Because the only problem with reading that isolated quote from Edwards, the only problem is, it can make it sound as if this change, this, this great transformation, it can make it sound like it's almost automatic. Unless you probe carefully 
in the quoted words of Paul that we just read, where he says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. So sanctification, this transformation, doesn't happen as quickly and automatically as justification. It happens as we, as we behold the glory of the Lord. That's the subject of today's teaching. That's why it happens more in some people's lives than in other people's lives. I mean, the question comes, doesn't it? You read that quote from Edwards, and you can, that's just beautiful. Why isn't everyone transformed as they behold divine truth? Why do some people struggle with this whole process of spiritual transformation? And why are some people Uh, left cold and indifferent to spiritual things. Now, for a lot of Christians, a whole slice of the body of Christ, more of a Calvinistic inclination, for those people, these questions are kind of open and shut. I mean, they rest their whole case on just the sovereign choice of God to give spiritual life to some people and not to others. That's a whole theological system, Calvinism. In this system, Jesus died on the cross only for the elect. Jesus didn't die on the cross for everybody. He never intended to die on the cross for everybody. He just died on the cross for the elect, those God sovereignly chose. So Jesus never came to die for everyone. He came for those the Father had chosen and those whom the Father has chosen, they will truly desire to be saved. But that very desire to come to Christ, that desire is only given to the elect. Those whom Father God has not chosen, they can do nothing to create that desire. They will never want to be saved. They can't want to be saved. They could never be interested in being saved. So God takes the elect. He selects a certain portion of people and gives them the desire for God. The non-elect aren't given that desire. They will never desire God. They will never be interested in God. That's not my position. I, I don't like that system. I don't think it's a biblical system. I don't think it expresses everything the Bible says on this issue. But I do, I do share some ground with the Calvinist. I do believe that salvation is only possible through God's grace. No one, please hear me, not one human being ever has been or ever will be saved by his or her own effort. Never. Not one. No one on his own or her own can even respond to God's grace. So salvation, here's where I agree with the Calvinist. Salvation is always of God. It is always God's initiative. But I differ on two important points. And I know this is a lot to unpack on a Sunday night teaching. I wrestled with whether or not to do it, but it's just so important. Here's where I would differ. First, I believe God has placed 
in the heart of all people by his sovereign choice. He has given everyone the capacity to respond to his voice. I, we don't have time to unpack all of that, but I get that concept. For example, from John's words, John's gospel, chapter one, verse nine, the true light, that's talking about Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Everyone is affected by the coming of Jesus. Not everyone is saved, but everyone is a light. There's an opportunity. It's not earned, it's given. God does it sovereignly. Paul expands on that same theme. We're not even going to look it up, but you can study it. Romans 5, 15 to 21. So in other words, here's what I'm saying. Everyone, not just some, everyone can come to the light. And the fact that everyone can come to the light is solely by God's gracious work in their heart. He initiated it. Not one person will ever or can ever initiate their own salvation. The second point where I differ, I said there were two points where I differ, is I don't believe God's grace is compulsive in its creation of a desire for himself. It's not irresistible. That's the more common term. It is sovereign in that God alone initiates the process. He exercises his will exactly as he chooses. But God, I believe, in his absolute sovereignty, has decreed that all people, while divinely enabled to be drawn, they are not selected into a loving relationship with him. And here's why I think that matters. A loving relationship where I could never love anything instead. To me, that says less about the beauty of the one loved than if the one loved was freely chosen over a host of other options. That, to me, gives God greater glory. If God is loved supremely at the top of a very long list of other possible options of my love, then he must be wonderful indeed. But if God is loved because through his irresistible grace, there are absolutely no other options for my love on the list, then that's the only reason he's embraced. I mean, if God has to remove all competing desires to win my love, then my love is a little more automated. In my view, my opinion, God gets less glory that way. Enough of this. I just wanted to state my view on that. My point is, I don't think this issue of spiritual mindedness, why some people respond and are changed and other people not, okay? I don't think it's simply the result of God flipping a coin as to who gets the desire and who doesn't. I believe, in fact, I know, God wants new life for everyone. 2 Peter 3.9, underline it in your Bible. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, underline, all should reach repentance. That word all, I mean, it's not complicated. You have to let it stand on its own feet. All means all. And this can't mean, as some have stated, well, that just means all the elect. It can't mean that. After all, none of the elect can possibly perish the way the words of the text indicate, not wishing that any should perish, verse 9. The only people who can possibly perish are those who aren't elect. And the text clearly says God's waiting for those people, those people who are perishing. He's waiting for them to repent. So back to the question, and here's how we're going to wrap up. I'm going to say point number one in a minute, but we're well into it, so don't panic. Back to our question. Why doesn't everyone find spiritual things compelling? Why? Why aren't all reached by it in the same way? I mean, for that matter, why don't we all, after our conversion, why don't we grow to be the same in terms of spiritual maturity? Why don't we grow at the same rate? Those are the issues of those two opening texts that I read from Romans and John. I have four points. We're just going to look at two of them, and we're actually almost done. So point number one, we'll look at the other two points next Sunday night. Point number one, the great contest between heaven and earth is to see which of them can most effectively draw out our love. It's clear that this is the supreme issue in the mind of Jesus anyway. Look at Matthew 22, 36 to 38. Matthew 22, 36 to 38. Teacher, they come to Jesus. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So in a sense, I think, the meaning of our world, the meaning of our lives, it sits right here as we study this tonight. What do you love most? That's it. That's the whole thing. That's the meaning of life. What do you love most? To get at this, let me ask you a question you might not have thought about. Why does God still allow Satan to muck things up so badly in this world? Whether they word it that way or not, that's really what everybody wants to know. That's what, that's what the... The, the people outside of faith, that's what they mock about Christians. Why does God allow the violence? If your God is so good, why is there so much hatred? Why the greed? Why the sickness? Why the hurricanes? Why the earthquakes? Why all this misery that flows from the prince of the power of the air? Why does a good God allow this to continue? Let's simplify it. If God is almighty... 
Why doesn't he just stop Satan and all of his horrible work? Why doesn't he just stop it now? He could fix things, couldn't he? After all, he's all-powerful. Apparently, God could crush Satan like a bug. So, so why doesn't he show that power? Why doesn't he use that power? Manifest himself. What is he waiting for? And I think there's only one good answer to that question. We want God to prove his power. And one day God will. But there's something else God wants to manifest right now that isn't just his power. And there's something else God wants to prove that he could never prove without Satan being alive and well and working on this earthly scene. God isn't presently just out to prove he's more powerful than Satan. Power is no issue with an almighty God. He's out to prove he's more desirable than Satan. And Satan has to be on the scene for him to do that. God's glory is manifested every time one of his creatures uses his or her universal God-enabled freedom to choose him over any other possible object of allegiance or affection. God gets more glory when I'm not irresistibly elected to love him but he shines more brightly when, as he enables me, I, I prize him freely above all else. That's the only reason for the ongoing spiritual battle unfolding in the history of the world up until tonight. God wants to be glorified by being chosen, loved, freely prized, while there are still other competitors for my love in this world. Does your life glorify God like that right now? I say it again. The greatest contest between heaven and earth is to see which of them wins the loyalty of my heart. It's the battle for your divinely enabled, freely devoted love. And you can see, look how Jesus highlights this supreme element of free choice as a manifestation of love for God. Look what, look what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, where he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you cannot serve God and money. Note the polar opposites. Hates one, loves the other. Devoted to one, despises the other. So authentic choice. That's where love is revealed. That's where lives are shaped. That leads to the last point. Point number two. And this gets real close to Churches, churches like Cedarview. Point number two, spiritual mindedness is love for God and that 
can't exist in our hearts if we love the world. So, so remember the quote by Edwards and our opening texts. Spiritual mindedness, that's what Paul calls it. It isn't just reading spiritual truth. It isn't even just having an intellectual understanding of spiritual truth. It's embracing it. It's loving it. It's being affected by divine things. Now, clearly that doesn't happen to everyone. Even in our particular land and culture where perhaps exposure to spiritual truth is more massive for more people than almost anywhere else in the world, still many people remain totally unmoved by it. They might not deny it, but they aren't affected by it and transformed by it. They don't love it. Why is this the case? And if it isn't the case, as I'm saying, it isn't the case that God elects some people, gives them the desire, leaves other people so they can't have the desire. If that isn't the case, and I don't think it is, then what is the case? 1 John 2, 15 to 17. We already looked at this text. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's the commandment. It's only one commandment. That's the, that's the command in this text. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, the results. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. Here's the problem, 17. The world's passing away. This, this, is, a, this is a losing bet. The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, how do we close this? Through the redeeming work of Christ Jesus, God the Son on the cross, we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. That's where everything starts. We are born of the Spirit, to quote Jesus' words. And then, as you grow in the Lord... And as the Holy Spirit begins to sharpen and shape and mold your life, you come to understand something very transforming and very profound. And, and it's this. Your spiritual life is shaped and grown and developed just as much by what you refuse to love as by what you love. Look carefully at that text that we read from John. Uh, amazingly, amazingly, when you read 1 John 2, 15 to 17, there isn't a single word telling these people that they ought to love Jesus. Not a word. His whole emphasis is on what these people must not love. John's an old apostle as he writes those words. And while Jesus was physically present here on earth, John was probably, probably as close or closer to Jesus than anyone else. And, and he has learned something about closeness to the Lord that he wants to pass on. Okay, here's the secret, John says. And it's all about what you don't fall in love with. We do it all differently. 
This is a big problem. We do it all differently. Churches all across Canada are working hard in their worship times to muster up feelings of love for Jesus. And there is a place for that. But I'll tell you what I think. I think many people are getting tired of trying to work up something that doesn't ring true in their own souls. And they get tired of trying to make themselves love Jesus by just repeating songs. So where does this leave us? Is the cross of Christ a failure? Does it just kind of pronounce forgiveness but leave our hearts unchanged? No, no, that's not the problem at all. The problem is different. The problem is many people miss the nature of the battle redeemed people have to fight. Remember this point. Spiritual mindedness is love for God and that can't exist in our hearts until we unlove the world. So, so here's where we are. Take this home. Well, you are home. Know the mind of your enemy, the devil. He is not out to get you and me to deny Christ. He will let you go to church. He will let you read your Bible. He will let you sing worship songs with your eyes closed and your hands raised. He doesn't mind any of that because he can render all of that absolutely useless. He doesn't have to remove spiritual things. He simply sows competing loves into our hearts. Remember Jesus' words in this parable, Matthew 13, 22? As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. There's the word right there up front. But the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches. Remember, Jesus, you can't serve God in money. John, you can't serve God in money. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word. It becomes unfruitful. Useless. Useless. Read it all you want. Useless. And the reason this plan of Satan works so well is ingenious. We would all instantly spot the wickedness of denying Christ. But we're made to feel prudish and legalistic when other interests creep in. Somebody warns us about it. Somebody tells us about it. Somebody preaches about it. Remember, it's not what you love by itself that makes you a spiritual person. You will find it hard to work up a love for God when you are still in love with the things of the world. There are no legitimate loves once Jesus isn't supreme. Let's pray. We're halfway through, Lord, studying this important subject. And it's got a lot of details in it. And I just pray that you'll give us understanding. 
patience to let your word work deep truths, the kind of things we don't hear about as much as we need. Work these things in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. To love you supremely requires unloving other things. So help us not to just try and work up a love for God. We'll feel like hypocrites really fast. But to distance ourselves from the love of the world, the things our culture finds so necessary for our happiness and joy and security, how they choke out the word in our lives. Direct us, speak to us, lead us, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless the church. Love one another. See you next Sunday night.